When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Ian Irving. A little later on, our Italian football writer James Horncastle will join us to discuss his brilliant piece on the redemption of AC Milan. With maybe a lesson or two in there for some of our top English clubs. But first, the Athletics' Adam Crafton and David Ornstein are with us to discuss the summer transfer window that's just about starting to sizzle. Let's begin then with Liverpool and David... They've agreed a big fee, it sounds like, with Benfica to sign striker Darwin Nunes. What's the detail behind this? Yeah, it's a done deal. It's not formally announced yet by Liverpool, uh, at the time of recording anyway. Benfica have released a statement overnight and it's confirming that the fee will be a guaranteed €75 million and then there will be add-ons to take this to a deal worth around €100 million euros. That's something we've reported for the last week or so. The key thing here was that Liverpool and Benfica needed to arrange a structure of payments and exactly how the split would occur. It seems it's going to be 75 million euros down payment and then the 25 in add-ons will comprise um, some individual related bonuses to Darwin Nunez's performance at Liverpool and then some team related bonuses as well. contingent on how well Liverpool do with him in the side in the coming years. They've got this done pretty swiftly and efficiently and managed to get a player that a lot of other clubs were in for as well, but not necessarily at that price. And it's a big moment too for the incoming sporting director, Julian Ward, who's overseen this deal, Mike Gordon, who's the sort of link to the ownership, the ownership themselves, uh, because they are financing this because it could be balanced out, that transfer fee, by sales it comes down to the salary, really. And I think that's a key area of discussion too. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. But Adam, just as the headline, what sort of a signing do you think this is for Liverpool? And how much of a statement is it as well for the club to go out and spend so big so early in the transfer window? I think it's a statement because, you know, you were looking at them at the end of the season and all of a sudden, you know, there was doubts about Mo Salah's future, doubts about Mane's future at the club as well. Obviously, Salah's committed, you know, to spend one more year there. Uh, but he's not signed a new contract. Uh, and Mane clearly wants to go. And I think Liverpool have known that for quite a few months, to be honest. I mean, they were framing it, you know, even in May, as saying, oh, we'll have a discussion after the Champions League final. But, they, uh, you know, the conversations I was having, they could sense that mood had changed. So they started planning, as good clubs should do. Um, you know, you, you're planning, how are you going to sell him? Where are you going to sell him to? How much are we going to get? And, and what can we replace him with? And Darwin Nunes, you know, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I've seen lots of Portuguese league games because I've not. But he's, you know, had a huge impact in the Champions League last season, scoring at big clubs. Liverpool obviously played against him twice in the Champions League. And he's someone that a lot of clubs were looking at. And a lot of clubs of kind of all different levels. I mean, you had Newcastle and Everton looking at him at different stages, but you've also had Manchester United um, look very closely and 
Barcelona as well. Um, I think there's also a confidence about signing players from the Portuguese league. You know, when you look at the last few years, someone like Bruno Fernandes, Ruben Dias, Edison, um, obviously Bernardo Silva came from Monaco, but I think there is a trust, you know, that when you're buying players from the Portuguese league that it's going to go well. Yeah, I do think this is the big test, really, for Liverpool, for Julian Ward as the incoming sporting director, because when they have committed a substantial outlay in the past Liverpool, we think of Virgil van Dijk, Alisson, who were proven, they were sort of game-changing signings. They were recruited to give Liverpool that final step to go on and win the major trophies like the Champions League and the Premier League. They were at an older age as well. Liverpool have changed their tack slightly with this one. They've gone for a younger player who's only had one season um, of really excelling in Portugal and did well in the Champions League. If you speak to people like we do around the game, they are intrigued by this one. I think that's a sort of polite way of putting it because um, they have some reservations about him technically, um, about his career so far. Um, about whether he is worth the money that Liverpool are going to be play- paying. Of course, when you spend a total package worth €100 million, Euros, you're going to have to play, start, prioritise, build around him. And that could see Liverpool uh, change their style somewhat. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, he being the focal point in a way that they've not had before. So what does that do to what has made them so successful to this point? Are we seeing the refresh that Adam's talking about with those three frontline strikers who are going into their 30s, who are out of contract in the summer of 2023? Is that the end for them? Is this the future? Um, And I'll bring it back to that point I mentioned on the salary. It's really crucial here. I don't think Liverpool are obsessed with um, making sure all of their transfer fees are to the liking of everybody. That can balance out they probably will cover this through sales by and large when we're talking about Sadio Mane, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Takumi Minamino and some others. What is essential here is the wage structure that needs to be respected for Liverpool to keep a harmonious camp and to remain sustainable. Paying Mo Salah in excess of £400,000 a week as he heads into his 30s is one thing. It's a much bigger question than paying Darwin Nunes, I don't know what it will be, but 80, 90, 100, 110,000 pounds a week. That slots in perfectly. And that is part part of Liverpool's methodology going forward. Paying in excess of 400,000 pounds a week is not. And perhaps that's why we don't have an agreement on Salah as things stand. Darwin Nunes was not the best striker on the market in this summer window. There was two that were, you know, broadly on the market, Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe. And Liverpool made inquiries about both of those players you know they got in touch with Dortmund because you know if you're Jurgen Klopp and you've been at Dortmund previously of course you're going to make that call and see what the situation is with Erling Haaland and in the same way as they tested the water with Mbappe and I think in both situations they came away from those conversations just thinking we can't go to that level from a salary point of view so therefore Liverpool's strategy is what's the best of the rest and can we get that and I think with Darwin Nunes they're looking at potential but also someone who's they think is is quite ready now and also someone that a bit like they did with Mane and Salah that Jurgen Klopp can develop and and really mold him into being a Liverpool player um 
you know, he comes with a status, but he's not a superstar. Um, you know, he's still got something to prove. It wouldn't be, you know, like a Haaland going in straight away. You're like, okay, that's that's terrifying. I think with Nunes, it's a bit more wait and see. Um, but I think, you know, if you're those other clubs that are chasing Liverpool and Manchester City and you see them both sign, you know, proper number nines at the start of this window, you're worried. Yeah, of course, all the updates were recorded now late morning on Monday. All the updates will be on the Athletic app on this transfer. There's a whole Darwin Nunes section if you want to check that out, including an interesting backgrounder by Nick Miller and Mark Carey, which details the fact that he likes to play from the left-hand side. And considering Sadio Mane had to be moved because Luis Diaz was doing so well on the left-hand side, for Liverpool at the end in the second half of last season. It'll be interesting to see how Jurgen Klopp works this one out. But David, listing all these things and adding in the, the departure of Sadio Mane, which we expect to happen over the course of this window, it's quite a start, isn't it, for the new sporting director, Julian Ward? Yeah, it really is. And Julian Ward is very highly rated within the game and of Liverpool, of course, otherwise he wouldn't get this role. Um, but that doesn't make it any less of a test. And I think if he was expecting uh, a quiet start, that obviously hasn't been the case. Um, Jurgen Klopp signing his new contract was probably brilliant news for Julian Ward, taking over from Michael Edwards, who had been in charge or at Liverpool at least for a decade and and in you know a real position of power in recent years. So when the news of Klopp's new deal came, um, you could forgive. Ward for breathing a sigh of relief and thinking, well, that that's great. He he's the king here, and um, and on we go into the future. And I congratulate get my feet under the table. Well, uh, it, it's a rude awakening in a good sense in that form now, because this is a massive deal for him. And you know he knows the Portuguese market extremely well. Adam may be able to expand upon that, um, but also um, this is a player that we're told that he absolutely loved. Uh, I think the big concern would have been about the price. And he would have had to debate that with Mike Gordon on behalf of the owners, who really is in charge of Liverpool on a day-to-day basis and is a key conduit. And, of course, Jurgen Klopp as the manager. Um, it's a big one for him as well, because there will be an expectation that he gets it right with this player. It's a really interesting transition now, because Michael Edwards, the outgoing sporting director, uh, is under contract, I think, until the end of August, the end of the transfer window. And then he'll head off into the sunset. Um, and it places great emphasis on uh, a man who was made his deputy um, in December, about a year and a half ago. Uh, so there was succession planning there that Adam talks about that other clubs are now trying to replicate with deputies, but uh, a little bit behind the curve, uh, unless you're saying Manchester City, uh, who are up there with Liverpool, of course. And it's a really fascinating time. Liverpool are, are best in class. I think that's pretty well established. Uh, it's not so long ago that we were seeing stories about their... Um, transfer committee that was being derided in many quarters but they turned it around pretty quickly and then they built gradually clubs like Manchester United will be hoping to do the same in the years ahead but Liverpool are among a small number of clubs setting the standard Julian Ward's a really interesting guy he um previously at Liverpool he was he was the guy that was almost managing the loan uh moves for the younger players and um I think that his job was kind of partnerships manager or loan partnerships manager. As a result of that, in that role, you you develop a lot of relationships with agents because you're dealing with a lot of young players, often from different parts of the world, and also helping to identify talent. Now, before that, he'd been at Manchester City, where he'd worked, I think, both in South America and Spain and Portugal. And he'd also worked with the Portuguese national team. I think it was when Carlos Quiroz was the Portugal manager. So you're looking at 
sort of 2010, 2011 kind of period. And at, and at that point, he was in the backroom staff working on analysis and also going around Europe, sort of building up relationships with Portuguese players and their families and agents and things like that. And one of the things that happened at the time was probably half that Portugal squad was made up of uh, clients of George Mendes. So as a result, Julian Ward was able to develop a pretty good relationship with that agency, Gestifute, which um, George Mendes manages his stable of clients. It's really paid dividends for Liverpool in recent years. When you look at players such as... Um, Fabinho that they've been able to do uh, through George Mendes. Who else, David, have they done through Mendes? Jota. Jota. So Fabinho they've done. Uh, Diogo Jota was definitely done between Julian Ward and George Mendes. Um, and then you've got this deal. And as far as I know, I think Darwin Nunes actually had different agents involved in the earlier stage yeah. of the process. But George Mendes, as is so often the case, becomes involved not that long before the deal happens and helps to make it happen. And when you speak to everyone involved, they always just say, well, it's fine. He made it happen and we're quite comfortable with it. He's obviously got a fantastic relationship with Benfica, George Mendes. And this this was a deal where you needed, I think, to have those relationships in place. And it's sometimes, you know, sometimes when you go into a new role, you need that bit of luck that your contacts are the ones that matter in a deal. And actually, for Julian Ward, that's what's happened here. And I would imagine as well that that January deal for Luis Diaz from Porto would also have had a link there where Julian would have known people from Porto and it would have been helpful. So on this one, George Mendes has had the mandate from Benfica. He's not actually, to my knowledge, the player's agent, but he is working with the player's agent to get this done. On the Luis Diaz one, he had the mandate from Porto to conduct Luis Diaz's transfer to Tottenham. So that was maybe an agreement with Daniel Levy. When the players' representatives found out about this mandate, they weren't particularly pleased because I think George Mendes or his company had made advances in the past to try and represent Luis Diaz, which they didn't like. And so they found out about the Tottenham possibility and they didn't approve of it. This is when Liverpool, who were looking at bringing in Diaz in the summer, stepped up their interest uh, using those connections. But George Mendes didn't actually do the deal because of that mandate to Tottenham. I think it was just done between Liverpool, Julian Ward, Michael Edwards, Mike Gordon, the players' agents directly, and of course, Porto. Of course, while we're talking about this, Manchester City have confirmed that Erling Haaland will be joining them. It's a bit of a secret, was it? I don't think so. For next season, he signed a five-year deal as well. It's been announced. All the information on that is on the live transfer blog on The Athletic at the minute. But Adam, this is just yet another sign that the best clubs in England are getting better, the strongest are getting stronger, and it's going to be even harder for everyone else to catch up, isn't it? Yeah, and not just in England. You know, if you're, I suppose, Real Madrid, Mm. Barcelona, Juventus, Bayern Munich, looking at this, the Premier League's the richest league in the world, and they're spending that money, and they're growing and reinvesting, um, and they're not standing still. And I think probably a year ago or so, you'd have looked at Man City and Liverpool and thought, well, we'll probably have 18 months more, two years of Klopp and Pep, and then everyone has a chance again. And now all of a sudden you're looking at it and thinking, these guys aren't going anywhere. They are not going anywhere, and they're going again with another cycle. So then if you're one of those clubs that's trying to claw them back, you start to think, how do we how do we get there? Because you're chasing your tail, and you're already 20 points, 30 points behind. And now Man City have added probably the you know the best out and out pure number 9 
in the world, you would say, potentially. Uh, and Liverpool have, have refreshed that forward line and kept their manager. So it's hard to see next season being anything different at this stage to Liverpool and Man City going at it again. Can any other club even do a deal like this this summer, David? Do you see anyone else in England or even abroad who can operate at the sort of level of, of Darwin Nunes and, and Erling Haaland? There aren't many, if any. Well, financially, there are possibilities out there because, you know, there is money. The Premier League has signed new television deals. Um, the effects of the pandemic are starting to wane in terms of crowds are back in stadiums. So revenues are buoyant again. Um, these countries that Adam talks about um, must be sick of the sight of the Premier League. Their enthusiasm around the European Super League because the Premier League's running away with it. Now, Manchester United have got resource. Uh, to what extent, we'll see by the end of the window. Some people you speak to says it's looking pretty tight there financially and others say, no, they will do deals. Uh, you'll see by the end, Frankie de Jong is the um, apple of Eric Ten Hag's eye and they'll want to get that deal done if they can and it will uh, command significant expense. I'm not sure how much they'll have afterwards to go for the striker that they want. Of course, Darwin Nunes was on their agenda. He's now gone. Do they go with somebody else or do they go with nobody? Do they plough that resource into central defence? Um, we're told that he wants a left-sided centre-back as well. Maybe even another couple of positions. So Manchester United is one where you know the resource is there. But they wanted Darwin Nunes, but they weren't prepared to go to the level of expense that, that Liverpool had gone to. The word is that um, Benfica felt they had two clubs in at 100 million euros. We now know one of them to be Liverpool. Who was the other? Some people have said Atletico Madrid. Others say no chance that they would have that sort of money. Chelsea have got new ownership. And so there will be money to spend there. They are making inquiries as we speak around players to strengthen their squad. We may see Romelu Lukaku leave. It sounds like if it's going to happen, it'd be most likely on loan. Um, Arsenal will spend some money. Tottenham Hotspur will spend some money. And they've already made some moves in the market, although not at expense so far. But that will come. Newcastle United, with their new ownership, OK, they need to consider financial fair play regulations. But if they can spend some of their resource and also add... Uh, new revenues through sponsorship deals, uh, will their budget be enlarged? Aston Villa have got wealthy owners as well. They've set off with, with a couple of signings and I'm sure there will be more to come. So there is the financial might out there to compete. Uh, but it's also about the intellectual might and the speed, the brevity, the efficiency of movement. Manchester City and Liverpool are experts in planning things out. They don't get everything right, but they get more right than wrong, it would seem. And they get more right than most other clubs. They have their targets, they move for them. When they miss them, they go for alternatives. And others perhaps lack the expertise, the decisiveness, the real clear thinking. Uh, the waters aren't as muddied at their end. Everything is... You know, everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, and that's why they're, by no coincidence, the top two teams in England um, and among the very best teams at the moment. The one uh, caveat to Adam's point about the rest of Europe is, is Real Madrid have flexed their muscle quite spectacularly, you know, in excess of 100 million euros for Aurelien Tumeni, who had... I don't think had a season yet in the Champions League. I mean, that's a, an extraordinary outlay. Of course, they were prepared to go huge for Kylian Mbappe, even if he had been a free agent. That is not a free deal. The soundings are that they're not done in the market just yet. So perhaps they are the ones who really are going to try and keep pace 
Paris Saint-Germain, uh, they will always spend in some form, even though they seem to be going down the route more of free signings now. So it is a an extremely busy and active market where I'm feeling more activity than I think ever before, certainly in recent memory, which is largely because of the effect the pandemic had. And Adam, quickly, just to mention, going back to Manchester United, talking about maybe having the finance and the resource to do deals, but how difficult do you think they'll find it, the fact that it's a new manager? So there's a bit of uncertainty compared to the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City and even Chelsea there. And also the fact that it's Europa League football and not Champions League football. Do you see that being a factor as well? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what David said in terms of United perhaps not thinking Nunes was worth going to that higher figure for. That's different, isn't it? Yeah, at the same time, you know, when it appeared last week, you know, we've seen reports for quite a while that United were looking at Nunes, but when it appeared last week that Liverpool were interested in him, well, straight away I just thought, well, that's the end of that for Manchester United. Because why would a player... You know, why would an ambitious player at this moment in time choose to go to Manchester United over Liverpool? If they were making that decision, I'd be worried about them. To be, you know, I don't, I don't mean that disrespectfully about Manchester United, but they're clubs at very, very different stages of projects. Um, Liverpool, obviously, in the Champions League, consistently getting to European finals, always competing in title races. Manchester United not being in a title race for almost a decade, aren't all, are very rarely in the Champions League. You know, they've got a challenge on and they've got to be really clever in the way that they identify talent. And, you know, it's a little bit worrying as well. You know, Frankie de Jong, some of the soundings coming out, I think now it seems like he's more on board with that move and that he won't he won't be saying no to it. But it sounds like he took a little bit of persuading to be get to be told you know you're going to have to leave Barcelona, which is understandable. I think that's a deal that they're probably able to do because of the relationship the head coach has with the player. That's not going to be the case with every player that they go for, and it's it's going to be a massive challenge for Man United, and that's why they've got to be clever. And you know I think they will do this this summer, but they can't go for those players who are those big names, established names. They have to be identifying talent that can grow with the club because that's not happened at that club for so long. Can they go and find the way that Liverpool went and got Andy Robertson for £7 million? Take someone, improve them, coach them, and turn them into a really good player. United just don't do that. And that's the challenge for them this summer. And it's, it's going to be a really difficult one. OK, keep your eyes peeled to The Athletic for all the latest transfer news, of course. This week, sounds like things are hotting up and throughout the summer as well. But we've also got some significant managerial news as well to reflect on. The Athletic have learned that Paris Saint-Germain have reached an agreement with head coach Mauricio Pochettino to see him leave his role ahead of the upcoming season after 18 months in charge. Not really a surprise this, Adam, to be honest, is it? No, it's not. It's been on the cards for probably since they went out of the Champions League uh, against Real Madrid. It's actually quite funny because after the first leg of that game, which PSG won in the in, very late on, PSG were convinced at that point that Real Madrid were going to try and take Pochettino off them this summer. And obviously it's turned out that Ancelotti won the league and the Champions League and Pochettino's the man without a job. <laughs> um, you know, if you were being generous about Pochettino, you could say, you know, PSG comfortably won the title. We've seen numerous managers, good managers go in there and struggle. Thomas Tuchel, Thomas Tuchel, Obviously, he got to a Champions League final, but generally didn't seem to enjoy the experience at PSG that much. Unai Emery as well, even Carlo Ancelotti. I mean, they all win league titles, but the, the, the challenge there is to go and win the Champions League and no one's been able to do it. And when you have a pattern of talented head coaches all go in somewhere 
and find things really difficult, then it probably means there's a broader cultural issue uh, within a club. And I think that's something that PSG now now finally recognised. They've made pretty substantial changes this summer, um, as well as Pochettino being on the way out. They've removed sporting director Leonardo. They've brought in Luis Campos to help with the recruitment as a football advisor. I think Antero Henrique is in as a um, to assist with sales um, of players, which is a big thing now for PSG because they've kept Mbappe they need to get players out if they're going to comply with financial fair play. I know a lot of listeners will be listening to this and just thinking that they don't really believe that PSG comply with financial fair play, whatever happens, but they do this summer really need to shift players out and there's probably seven or eight players that are available. I think they would listen to offers for Neymar, but they also appreciate that that market for someone who is on extortionate money at PSG probably just isn't there this summer that there isn't possibly a buyer that's able to do that deal but if one was to come in I think it's one that they would be prepared to do but it leaves them therefore having to move out sort of those more mid-ranking players you know Idrissa Gay, Danilo Pereira, uh, Julian Draxler that kind of level and, and just on Pochettino unfortunately for him I mean it never really felt like he settled at PSG he was um, I know he was living in a hotel for quite a bit of it. The style of football wasn't particularly good, even though they were winning games. It wasn't particularly good. I think PSG became a little bit frustrated by the impression they had that he was maybe hankering for a return to England. You know, there was a strong link last summer. You know, he spoke to, to people at Tottenham last summer and was interested in going back to them. Real Madrid were interested last summer and. Um, Eventually, they went for Ancelotti. And then Manchester United came along and Pochettino held discussions with them as well. I think there was a point at which it all felt a bit like PSG were at a networking event, talking to someone um, in, you know, in that room and that, that person's always looking with their eyes, waiting for the next really exciting thing to come across. And I think for PSG, when you've bought you know, what they did last summer, Messi, Wijnaldum, Hakimi... Uh, Sergio Ramos, uh, Nuno Mendes, I've probably forgotten someone, Donna Rummer. You know, that was a really big summer. And you know, if you're the PSG owner, you're probably looking at Pochettino thinking, just crack on, right? You've got this amazing squad. You've got Messi, Mbappe, Neymar. But he found it difficult. He found it difficult to manage. I think there's probably a question as to, you know, how much did Pochettino want all of those players? You know, were they his signings? To be honest, I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I can't really say. They were, or they were or weren't, but I think it's probably a fair question at some point which he may address. But at the same time, I don't think there was an impression when all those players came that he was saying, oh, I'm not having, not having that messy and I'm not having Hakimi. Yeah. I think at the start of the season, there was a lot of excitement, um, but it just, it just didn't work out. And you now have Pochettino in a situation where his stock has really dropped and you're not quite sure where he's going next. Yeah, that's the question, David, isn't it? What next for Pochettino? You had the story on The Athletic about him agreeing to leave. And it also sounds like PSG are going in a slightly different direction with his replacement compared to some of the names that we've been listing off who've given it a go there. I don't think any manager would say no to all of these players. And if they did, they probably would be ignored, especially at a place like PSG. And that taps into what's gone before him. So Ancelotti... um, I think it was then Laurent Blanc, Unai Emery, Thomas Tuchel, all of them in various time spans have suffered the same fate as him. Um, They've departed. They've also, all of them apart from Laurent Blanc, gone on 
to European success in terms of the Champions League or the Europa League titles. And and that's something that Pochettino will be looking to do now in the future because I don't think you become a bad coach overnight. I don't think you become a Champions League final coach for no reason. I don't think you get linked with um, Manchester United repeatedly. He was the apple of their eye. Uh, a return to Tottenham. Real Madrid high up on their uh, list of candidates before they went for uh, Carlo Ancelotti for no reason. Um, and therefore, that's probably where he'll pitch himself still for the time being at this top level after he's had a break. There's inevitably going to be changes again at various clubs in the October, November, December World Cup period uh, if things aren't going their way, even into the early part and summer of 2023. He took some time out, of course, after Tottenham. He came into a difficult situation mid-pandemic, mid-season. Uh, the only other time PSG had changed coach mid-season was when Ancelotti came in and he also did not win the league, although that was coming up to a decade ago now. So it was quite a different time, but it was under the Qatari ownership too. And Pochettino, with all due respect to your Newcastle United, uh, who seem to be uh, very happy with Eddie Howe at the moment. Aston Villa, um, an, an immediate impression by Steven Gerrard. It wasn't so good towards the end of the season, but they're all in on him. Uh, your Everton's and, and others of this world. I do think Pochettino will be looking higher. We don't know how long the Real Madrid manager, whoever it may be at any given time, will stay in position. Um there are new situations at the likes of Chelsea, Manchester United. You never know with the Juventus, who Pochettino has also been linked to. Barcelona, I don't know how feasible that would be with his Espanol background. Uh, Inter Milan, AC Milan, they're very happy with Purely now, but their expectations have changed. They're in the Champions League again. They've got new ownership coming in. So I do think he will be in those mix. And it's not really my opinion. It's more educated from the people you speak to in football and where they see him because they're making these decisions. But it is a delicate time now because he lost out on the Manchester United job, presumably in no small part because of the way that the PSG experience has gone. The way um, he has managed in the view of the Manchester United hierarchy, the egos in the dressing room, the politics above and around him, Eric Ten Hag uh, perhaps benefited from being in a more stable environment at Ajax, where he uh, is at the club who enjoys most of the domestic success um, and has made some progress in the Champions League too. So maybe the PSG tenure has worked against Pochettino and that it's been to his detriment. But I do think he will still have high ambitions for the time being. Uh, it's going to take some uh, bravery from a club to take him, his project on. But I don't think memories are, are too far off of, of what he did at Tottenham, the way he built, what he did at Southampton, at Espanyol. And I think that will gain him more opportunities ahead. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what happens next for Poch. But for the minute, David, thank you very much for being with us as always. Pleasure, guys. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Right, the Athletics' James Horncastle joins us now to discuss his long read on how Super Club AC Milan became once again, well, super, by winning the Italian Championship again. It features interviews in that piece with the manager Stefano Piole, defender Ficayo Tomore, and CEO Ivan Gazidis, who told James, these giant clubs are not little speedboats or jet skis that you can turn on a dime because they feel far more like oil tankers at times, James, don't they? But they've done it at AC Milan. It's taken a little bit of time. How have they done it? Well, I think a cultural reset in which they basically uh, told themselves it's not enough to think we're a super club anymore. It's not enough to think like AC Milan used to think. You know, I think internally debates over who they should recruit, you know, often uh, would turn to that. You know, what does a Milan player look like? Um, Should we be signing players who've just been relegated with Empoli because they're actually young and talented um, and represent good value? Or should we be signing players who are represented by George Mendes and Mina Ryler and cost, you know, 40, 50 million and have have big salaries? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that they the way they looked at it was to say, who are the clubs doing really well around Europe who are punching above their weight? Um, because we can no longer afford to spend in the way that Berlusconi did in the past. Obviously, the game's changed. I mean, even Berlusconi, when he was explaining how he was cashing out on uh, on football with AC Milan, he said, you know, it was one thing to be a titan of industry and to be you know, one of the wealthiest per- people in Europe. It's another thing when you're competing against states that have um, oil and gas behind them. And so I think even speaking with Ivan Gazidis over the last week, he said that I suppose their, you know, the lesson from, the, from, from this title win is that you know, ideas can uh, beat money um, or at least find a way to be competitive in, in this environment because 
they've done it with a net spend of 75 million. Um, they've done it uh, by actually reducing their wage bill by 30%. And, and you know, as we, I think anyone who's read any academic papers about uh, how to be competitive in football over the last two decades, it's usually been like, you know, if you, the more you spend on your salary bill, the more likely it is you'll do well. Um, but I think at Milan, they found the one that they inherited was full of very old players who were depreciating in value, weren't contributing on the pitch. And, uh, and yeah, they had to take some very tough decisions, which have ultimately paid off. Yeah, a paragraph of your piece got very nautical, didn't it? We've already mentioned the reference to speedboats and jet skis, but Gazidis also had a line about yachts, didn't he? And it actually does make a lot of sense when it ties into what you're talking about, the fact that the money was so much lower that Milan spent compared to their their rivals. And also, you didn't mention it, but the, the, the payments to agents and, and intermediaries was so much lower than everyone else. They did need to, to, to do it differently. Yeah, I, I think they wanted to take a, a proactive acro- approach to recruitment, which um, you know was supported by uh, data, uh, supported by analytics. Um, they didn't want uh, their recruitment to be dictated to them by, by agents um, who were you know, coming, recommending players. Um, and and you see that in, in in the latest figures published by the Italian Football Federation. I mean, I think uh, Juventus spent twenty eight million, uh, Inter twenty seven million, uh, Roma twenty six million, Milan spent twelve million, which is probably still twelve million more than they would have liked to to spend. But I think yeah, that it's similar to to Liverpool's approach in in, in some respects because yeah, Liverpool like to do business without intermediaries. Um, they like to be very direct. They like to be proactive as well. And certainly, I, I think this entire project that uh, they, they put in place at AC Milan was loosely inspired on, on Liverpool because, you know, even though Jurgen Klopp's receiving um, <laughs> some criticism uh, after this, this signing of Darwin Nunes um, because of the, the, the fee involved and you know how Liverpool always always say, you know, we we do things responsibly, sustainably. We can't compete with uh, the kind of uh, state wealth that is behind Newcastle and Man City. They are run along these lines, which is we we uh, we're very disciplined when it comes to fees. When we come to the agent fees, we're not afraid to walk away um, if the valuation of a player we really like uh, is more than we would like to pay. Um, and uh, and ultimately, that's that disciplined approach has allowed them to. To put together a team, I wouldn't say on the cheap, but it's a team that they're gonna they've got value from. It's it, it, if Milan wanted to sell players, uh, they could they could make very big profits on the players that they bought uh, over the last two or three years. So it's part of a virtuous circle now, really, where they've got out of paying backup goalkeepers like Pepe Reina, you know, five or six million a year, <laughs> um, and Lucas Billia, the kind of former captain of Argentina. Um, who was, you know, sort of in his thirties and was already in decline, a lot of money, to um, uh, to, to to finding players, you know, in French academies, teenagers finding players on the fringes of top clubs, uh, of talent hoarded clubs like uh, Real Madrid. So you think of Teo Hernandez, and uh, and yeah, so they're they're in a very healthy healthy p- p- position right now. Adam, they've been bought. Um, as well as as well as winning the league um, by Redbird um, and Jerry Cardinal, who's the the man, the man fronting that. It seems to me that it's a pretty similar idea of how a football club should run. I mean, using data and analytics for recruitment, trying to run sustainably, having this 
I suppose this idea of a virtuous cycle where if you win ga- if you win games and you win trophies that increases revenue which you can then reinvest into the squad and and, and that's all good is that the feeling in Italy? The feeling in Italy whenever there's a takeover is wow these people must have a lot of money because they're they're spending uh, they're valuing the club <laughs> at 1.2 billion so they get very excited and yeah. uh, it was interesting because before uh, Redbird uh, reached this agreement um, Elliot the the current owners uh, a hedge fund themselves were in exclusive talks with another private equity fund called Investcorp which is mm. is based in Bahrain and you know whilst Bahrain isn't a sovereign wealth uh, Investcorp isn't a sovereign wealth fund um it does have you know some sovereign wealth funds who have a stake in in it and there weren't really many scruples about that in Italy it was very much kind of wow can these can these people spend are they like the saudis taking over newcastle isn't that exciting um, because outside of the Premier League, I think there is this kind of recognition that um, uh, in order to compete with the Premier League, um, you need very wealthy benefactors. Um, and uh, 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 and because I think that the rest of Europe has been kind of left behind or feels like it's being left behind, they're, they're more eager to accept um, sovereign wealth money um, than let's say we are in the UK in terms of in, in terms of how we react to it. So uh, I think the Redbird investment is 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 quite encouraging. You know, I think Elliot they wanted to sell the club to a fund that uh, was like them uh, in terms of that could offer continuity plus that it could uh, perhaps add more value in much the same way that I think a lot of these American investors think there's still money to be made by paying these huge prices for football clubs um, because they see it as part of this kind of media sports and entertainment convergence they see it as this massive content producing vehicle um, you know be that what Chelsea represent to Todd Bowley be it what Milan represent to to Redbird and that was preferable than to to find an oligarch <laughs> than to find than to find a, a sovereign wealth fund but I, I think it, it, it remains to be seen what happens with Redbird, obviously they've they have their, they have a football club to lose in Ligue 2, um, who got promoted. Um, Damien Camoli has been president of that club. Luke Bourne, who's kind of very highly regarded uh, in analytics circles, used to work for AS Roma when Polotta was there, and was I think the GM of the one of the Sacramento teams, certainly in NBA. But I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the, the next few weeks because I think. Elliot have done a very good job of of of, of combining analytics with. Um, I wouldn't say old school Italian, um, you know, way of operating, um, but you know, Paolo Maldini is a, a, a football man. They've managed to—he's uh, managed to sort of adjust what he expects of a, how a football team should be run, um, align with with Elliot when it comes to data and analytics. Um, and it hasn't always been smooth that journey. Certainly, they've had other sporting directors who've left in the meantime. Leonardo, for example, who went back to PSG. Leonardo used to having a almost infinite budget at PSG. That's very different to how Milan were run. It's um, Fonamir Boban as well. Very much of the kind of opinion that Milan is Milan. There's only a certain pool of players that Milan can 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 look to recruit, perhaps. Um, and you know, it's it's produced some tension. So how? Redbird kind of managed the kind of, uh, okay, we're going to bring in some, we're going to kind of add to the analytics that they already have and and keep everybody on side and everybody happy and everybody feeling that they're contributing and that sort of thing is going to be 
very interesting, I think. Yeah, your piece has got lots of interesting detail on all the different aspects of what's made this a really special achievement for AC Milan. And some finer details on the celebrations, of course, which you'd expect considering how long Milan had had to wait for another Scudetto. Um, tales of cigars, of, of tacky tattoos, of Zlatan giving impassioned speeches on balconies and things like that. And I guess Zlatan's role in this for us over here is interesting as well, isn't it? Because of the character that he is. And because actually him arriving at Milan, Ibrahimovic, at a time when the club are changing their their idea of what a Milan player is so much, is interesting because he almost seems a catalyst for all of this in a sense. He's empowered in a way that players are not usually empowered at other teams. Yeah, he's the catalyst for it. He's also, um, you know, everything we've just spoken about, about uh, sort of, value signings, um, players at a young age, full of potential, resale, you know, signing a guy who's close to 40, who's been in MLS for two years and there's, you know, people at the end of his time at Man United thought he'd suffered a career-ending injury. It, it flies in the face, really, of of that strategy. And yet, Zatan, you know, was the kind of, uh, the glue that kind of brought it together. I think as much as you have two sides to Zlatan, on the one hand, I think there's a, a obvious appreciation that he is, a highly gifted player who's been very significant um, in his generation as one of the best players of his generation. On the other hand, there's this this idea that he is this kind of caricature, this kind of parody of himself. And yeah, I, I think what's really important about his t- his time at AC Milan, and you can even see this at Manchester United, is that he brings a, a mentality, a level of competitiveness, a, a standard and accountability, that does have an impact on the players around him. That does have an impact on the team, uh, regardless of whether he's scoring goals or not. Um, his impact off the pitch is, is almost as important as on it. And I think that's a really important part of his legacy, actually. I don't think it's something you could say about some of his, his Ballon d'Or winning counterparts in his generation, because I, I do think he has, uh, he, he has leadership qualities that go beyond just being a technical leader, as they call it, you know, by lead by example, by winning games on the pitch or scoring goals in moments when no one else can. I think he's been there for his team. He's, he's, he's allowed young players to blossom uh, by taking a lot of responsibility, taking a lot of pressure off them, um, by just sharing his experience and and giving them confidence rather than draining them of confidence, which, you know, uh, some superstars can do by giving the impression that the players around them aren't good enough to play with them. Uh, It's not there as a skill attribute on a football manager or a FIFA kind of profile kind of thing, but I think Zlatan would score 20 in that regard. And, you know, for a guy to be on the last Milan team that won the league in 2011, to do it again in 2022 uh, and keep the promise that he kind of made, which was to say, look, I will win the, uh, I will win the league um, with this team before I retire. And we don't know whether he's going to retire or not, even though he's just had knee surgery, which will keep him out for eight months. Is is a pretty remarkable story, whatever you think about Zlatan. How, how far off do you think they are from being significant in Europe in the Champions League again because um, this year they, they were pretty poor in terms of the performance in the group stage I, I, I'm obviously aware you know Serie A is, is operating in, in, in different markets really to the Premier League but how long do you think it would be before we see Milan you know be a scary place to go again? It's difficult to predict really um, from ownership point of view but also you know, from from the coach and the, and the players, it's it's an area where they can obviously improve. Yeah, this year was their their first season back in the Champions League in seven years, um, and it, it it did feel like a baptism of fire, really. Um, I think 
they could and deserve to do more in the Atletico game. So it's kind of, um, I don't want to go over the the decision-making, referee decisions in those games, but they did go Milan's way. But more generally speaking, they have to be a more, I'd say, more aggressive, more difficult team to play against than they were this year. Um, I think that will come gradually with with uh, not more investment, but just building on what they've already done. Um, but uh, th- I think it has to be seen in the wider context of Serie A's competitiveness or lack of in Europe, um, because you know the last team to win the Champions League was was Inter in two thousand and ten. Um, uh, you can imagine Jose Mourinho winning that and winning the next European trophy with with Roma, the Conference League. Um, did a lot for his profile, which was already very much intact in Italy anyway. As someone who just knows how to to get things done and get uh, and win things. Set up quite an interesting debate, given the style of play in which Roma won the Conference League, um, which was uh, at times backs against the wall, um, scoring your, with your only chance. Um, this is how Italian we- teams used to win. We should go back to doing that. When I think there's a lot of progressive people in the league who've um, who have a, of a new generation who've been trying to align themselves more with what we've seen other teams do and win in the, in 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 the Champions League. It's tricky because Milan are trying to do it in a um, sustainable um, way where they've, as I've mentioned, cut costs at a time when uh, Premier League teams are spending colossal amounts on, you know, centre-backs. Ben White's going for £50 million on a team that doesn't even make the Champions League. You've got Inter, whose future is uncertain, you know, in terms of they're always having to sell players at the end of every year, their best players, and, and, and go again with, with free transfers and, and older players and you know, sometimes that's that's not that that doesn't seem like their their title win last year was at the beginning of the some, beginning of something. It felt it was more like the end. Um, and then Juventus, who um, you know, who have reached two Champions League finals in twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen, but um, but certainly have lost their way um, of late. And you know, they they will sign Paul Pogba. Um, they will have a very competitive team. This year, but they've they lost their identity, and I think they're still refining it because they're they're a little bit caught between what they once were and what they tried to be. Um, so, so it's 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 an interesting one. Um, you know, I I, I I I think even when Inter won the Champions League in twenty ten, they weren't among the favourites, and I think going into next year, you wouldn't say any of the Italian teams among the favourites to win the Champions League. <laughs> Okay, that's it for today. Thank you to Adam and to James as well. If you want to read more about AC Milan's resurgence and indeed all the stories that we've talked about on the podcast today, you can subscribe now for just £1 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But for the minute, thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. The Athletic.